Good evening, everybody. It's good to see everybody who's here tonight. We are, as Tim's already indicated, continuing in Exodus, where we're going to consider chapter 26. So, Exodus chapter 26, if you have your Bible and turn to it, that would be helpful. Just take time to read the whole of the chapter. So, Exodus 26. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another. And you shall make fifty clasps of gold, and couple the curtains one to the other, with the clasps, so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains you shall make. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain, four cubits. The eleven curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves, and six curtains by themselves, And the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze and put the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be a single hole. And the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on one side and the cubit on the other side, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and that side to cover it. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of goat skins on top. You shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame, and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. So shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle. Twenty frames for the south side, and forty bases of silver you shall make under the twenty frames. Two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, 20 frames, and in their 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle, westward, you shall make six frames. And you shall make two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear. They shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top at the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them. They shall form the two corners. And there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame and two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of one side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. The middle bar, halfway up the frames, shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars, and you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it, and you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the Ark of the Testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the Ark of the Testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil 
and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table, and you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. And God will bless what we've read from his word. Now, um, all quite complicated um, instructions, of course, that God gave to Moses uh, for the construction of the tabernacle. It's worth remembering that in the immediate context of Exodus, the tabernacle is central to the worship of God that would henceforth take place. Whenever the camp was established, it was at its centre. The tribes were encamped around it. We read of that elsewhere. We're not going into that in detail tonight. But it was at the centre of the camp and it was the focal point for spiritual activity. And it was the place where sacrifices were made. And in particular, where the great events associated with the Day of Atonement, that once per year event that was important, so important in the calendar of the people of Israel, that's where uh, these events, these things were enacted each year. Then later in the history of the children of Israel, uh, it would be superseded by Solomon's temple, which in turn was replaced by Herod's temple, both in Jerusalem. And it was the latter, Herod's temple, that was the temple which was extant when the Lord was here, and of which we read in the Gospels, indeed, um, for those that were here this morning, it was the temple that uh, Boya read about and spoke partly about this morning, was the temple that, that Herod had built. And the pattern for the tabernacle, it's important that we recognise it was wholly specified by God. Everything that I read were the words of God to Moses. Yeah, that is part of more instruction. But this was God speaking directly with Moses when he was in the mountain for, uh, for 40 days and nights, I suppose. And um, here Moses received directly from God these instructions. And the pattern um, was provided orally, as we have read, and also it was provided visually, which we'll come back to later. And that pattern, as well as being used for the tabernacle, was in turn used as the basis for Solomon's temple. And although we don't know much about Herod's temple, really, um, one would assume that in turn that uh, was used, although maybe it was more based on Solomon's temple than on the tabernacle as such. But what we want to see, and we'll, we'll see tonight, uh, is that with the Enlightenment from the New Testament, and especially from the book of Hebrews, that wonderful as it was, that the tabernacle was but a shadow uh, of the things that are in heaven. And, and it's important that we recognise that. Now, Hebrews chapter 8, uh, verses 1 to 5, familiar verses, I'm sure, but we'll take time just to read that through and remind ourselves um, The writer says, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So the writer of the Hebrews talks about the true tent and he talks about the, the true tent that the Lord set up in heaven not man, because the tabernacle, although instructed by God, was set up by man. It was men who made it. We'll read of that, the construction of the tabernacle and the skillful people and the skilled workmen who made uh, the, the components and uh, constructed it. 
And we also, as I said, um, read that um, it was a shadow of the heavenly things. So it will allow us um, to, to look into heaven um, as, we, as we think about it. Now, it's important, too, that we recognise um, verses that we read um, in, in the um, sections that um, Tom dealt with a couple of weeks ago, um, that God has a, had a purpose in all of this. And God's purpose was to have a sanctuary made where he might dwell in the midst of his people. Now, in chapter 25, verse 8, uh, again, this is God speaking directly. The Lord is speaking to Moses. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. This was a change in how God was going to interact. Um, he wasn't simply going to speak uh, with people in some remote way or occasional way. He was wanting to dwell amongst his people. And the sanctuary for which the instructions we provided, was to be a place that he might dwell in their midst. And as I said earlier, when they camped, the people were all camped round about um, the, the complex, which uh, is the sanctuary that we do with verse 8. And the wonderful thing is that further down in chapter 25, verse 22, we read the words a couple of weeks ago and remind ourselves tonight, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So God was going to be here, not as a man incarnate as the Son of God became, and which Stuart helpfully told us about this morning, but God himself in spiritual form, would dwell amongst his people and would communicate. Um, and that was something that was going to have a particular location. It would be above the mercy seat between the two cherubim. That would be the place from where God would speak. And that would be the location of God's presence on earth. So this was something that was new. And therefore, everything we read, I've already thought about in chapter 25 in the last couple of weeks that we've just read about and things that we will continue to look at over the coming weeks, if the Lord will. Um, at the centre of the tabernacle, there is the concept that it is the place that God was going to dwell and he would meet with his people. Now, what we'll do tonight is we'll think a bit about the form of the tabernacle uh, with its coverings, framework, and contents, and then go on to think about um, what I've called the protocol of the tabernacle, how it would be accessed, and, uh, and so on. Um, and that will let us see that with an understanding of the tabernacle, then the believer in the present day can have an insight uh, into heaven itself, and we can better appreciate our relationship with God. Uh, now, um, pages of notes today um, with all the various verses to, to look at and uh, the complexity of the construction of the tabernacle and so on. Um, I was at one point thinking I would get a PowerPoint presentation and try and do it, but A, I'm not artistic enough to start drawing things from scratch, and B, I couldn't really find anything that um, really didn't have distractions in it that I had to explain I thought were wrong or irrelevant, so I decided to avoid it completely. Um, I would say that often when you picture in your mind the tabernacle, um, if somebody said, what did the tabernacle look like? And a picture will spring to your mind. Something you've seen in a book, um, maybe at the back of your Bible, maybe within your study Bible near this passage, and there's a picture of the tabernacle. And what often you see is this uh, surrounding fence, if you like, and a courtyard and the brazen altar and the laver within it, and then this tent, and the tent being a kind of high-ish thing and coming off at an angle at the side and tied down with guy ropes all round about this outer covering. Now, 
you notice there's nothing I read at all about guy ropes or anything like that. So I decided that I'd dispense with all these pictures um, and think of this, the simple way in which it's described. The other thing that is worth saying is that we remember that God had shown Moses what it was he wanted to have built. So it wasn't just the oral instructions. The oral instructions allowed Moses to understand things like these rods are to be made of acacia wood covered in gold. Now, if, God, if, if Moses had simply looked, they would have looked like golden pieces of material. He wouldn't have known there were acacia wood inside. So the instructions lent that sort of information. They also provided information about the dimensions. But there are some things that the instructions don't, and we'll come to one or two in particular, don't really help us um, to get to. Because you couldn't build a tabernacle using this chapter purely as the instructions. But remember, the bits that you sometimes might read and think, well, how did they manage to do it exactly as God wanted using these instructions that are limited in their precision um, could be interpreted ambiguously well, the definitive answer is Moses had seen what he had to make. And God had shown Moses. And <clears throat> Moses, in turn, was able to tell the men who were doing the construction exactly what it was that they had to do. So God had made it clear orally, verbally, as well as pictorial. Well, um, not pictorially, actually showed him something, um, whether it was some kind of model or, or whatever of what he was to, to build. We, we don't have insight to that, but God had let him see as well as telling him what it was he had to make. So let's think about what, uh, what we read about then. And uh, we definitely need to be mindful of time because... Uh, People take a whole series talking about the tabernacle and speak for two weeks about the tabernacle. So, covered all the chapters, of course. One, the first thing that struck me, and uh, this, was, this was a bit of precision in the language that I had not picked up on before um, in X years. If you look carefully at uh, verse 1 and verse 6, you'll see that the tabernacle is the innermost part, the innermost curtain. It is the curtain, the ten curtains, that form a single whole. That's what the tabernacle is when Moses is being told about it. And it's that particular thing um, that is made, we'll come back to in a minute, of this fine twined linen with all of the uh, spectacular yarn of um, scarlet and of blue and of purple and with the cherubim skillfully worked into them. That's what is being referred to in this chapter as the tabernacle. And then there's a covering that will go over it, which is called the tent at verse 7. You shall make curtains of goats here for a tent over the tabernacle. Right, so... Um, I'll, on occasions, I'll specifically refer to the tabernacle as meaning that innermost curtain, although often, and in scripture, the tabernacle is used to refer to, to the wider whole. What's interesting is that these uh, curtains that were to be made, for which we read the dimensions, there were uh, 28 cubits by 4 cubits each, and they were a fine linen. And many things that are associated with the tabernacle were made of fine twined linen. Uh, the veil, for example, the screen, and much of the garments of the high priest were made of this material. And when we read of fine twined linen, um, we're reminded that uh, in Revelation chapter 19, uh, we read the verses, to her was granted that she should be arrayed, this is the church, 
in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And fine white linen often speaks of righteousness. And righteousness is associated with God's holiness, of course. So in the inside material, the first thing that was to be done was something that would speak of the purity of God, for the place that God was going to dwell would be something that reflected his character of holiness, righteousness, of absolute purity. And then there were these other curtains of goat's hair that were put on top, and then there was the tanned ramskins, like leather, and then the goat skins on top. And supporting all of that, uh, there was a framework that was made up of a total of 48 frames, if you picked that up. Um, if, you didn't, if you didn't pick it up in the first reading, um, don't worry, because uh, it does take quite a bit of reading and sketching and thinking what's going on here. Um, but along the south side and along the north side, there were 20 frames. And at the back, there were six frames and then another two for the corner. So 48 all together. And these frames, we read about them. Um, oops, turned to two pages. That doesn't help. Um, these frames we read about at verse 15. Uh, they are 10 cubits the length of them and a cubit and a half wide. So as they sat on their end, they were 10 cubits high, 15 feet um, high. And uh, one and a half uh, cubits wide. So we'll stick with cubits. Uh, half a meter to a cubit is as good a is as good a way of thinking about it as any. So, ten cubits high, five meters high was this framework that was built, and the frame was made of acacia wood covered in gold. Now that was a rich material to be covered in gold like that. It would look spectacular. And we'll come back later to what it would look like when it was assembled. So these frames were all made and they were sat on these bases and they were connected together. Now, as an example of something that's difficult to make sense of as instructions, if you look at verses 23 and 24, it says, You shall make two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear. They shall be separate beneath but joined at the top at the first ring. Thus it shall be with both of them. They shall form the two corners. Now that doesn't tell you how to actually make them in such a way that you make the corners. How do you lay them together? But bear in mind what I said earlier that Moses knew. And um, I was encouraged. Um, Andrew Grant's still here this week. But his late grandfather's uh, commentary ex on Exodus quotes uh, George Bush's commentary on Exodus. Not President George Bush, of course, but... Uh, maybe a more worthy man, who, um, who said that these two verses, uh, I wrote it down because I, I, was, I was amused by it when I read it, and I thought it was good. These two verses are involved in an obscurity which we have endeavoured in vain to penetrate. Um, so what the man was saying was, hard as one might look, you'll never be able to get to the bottom of exactly what it meant. Uh, but as I say, it wasn't desperately important for the reasons given. So these frames were at the back on the corner. And altogether, um, there were 20 along one side, 20 at the opposing side, and these eight arranged in a certain way at the back. So the breadth would be between six and eight by one and a half cubits, which is between nine and 12 cubits. Now, I believe, uh, for reasons that I'll give you in a minute, that the width of the tabernacle construction, the frame, was 10 cubits. And the reason for that is that, uh, chronologically first, Solomon's temple that we read of in First Kings, uh, we read that the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. And uh, although the dimensions are twice as long, the linear dimensions, the shape of a cube, 20 by 20 by 20, um, I think reflected the shape of the holy place, the most, sorry, the most holy place, and 
that would give us 10 cubits in width. And also in uh, Revelation 21, speaking of the New Jerusalem, uh, we read that its length and width and height are equal. So that's the kind of size that the, the tabernacle would be. So here we have this uh, construction. It's made of acacia wood covered with gold that uh, is... As Stephen thought about last week when he was talking about uh, the table, um, the the wood would speak of the Lord's humanity and uh, the the gold would speak of the Lord's deity. And uh, the two go hand in hand. Um, Again, thankful to Stuart for making a clear point on that this morning. We can't separate these two things. Um, And the splendour, though, of his glory is like the splendour of gold. It's the bright material of gold that we're thinking about. It's not a dull, you know, six-carat gold or nine-carat gold. It's the idea of pure gold that shines in the light. And so this frame, when it's built, is a bright, shining thing. But it's covered, first of all, in the tabernacle um, curtains. And then it's covered in this felted like goat's hair curtains. Then it's covered with leather and it's covered with goat skins. And all of this, without going into all the details I had to try and work out in my head that I think detract from, from what we're trying to say really, all of this completely covered the wooden structure and light didn't get in at the bottom. It wasn't as if it sort of dropped to a metre above floor level. And inside, by the time the screen was placed on the front, this was a place with no windows, no illumination from outside. And so, of its own, at that point, it was a dark place. The gold would not have been very visible and bright. We'll come to, we'll come to what made it bright later. So that's how it was constructed. And um, I've chosen not to try and go into interpreting all of the symbolism of the materials because that would, that would definitely take us a long time. But the key thing is there are many ways we can look at these things and quite seriously and genuinely reflect things and things that tell us about Christ. So then we look at um, how, the, how this construction, this building was to be Divided, And this is critical because a veil was to be made and the veil is described how it will be made and it is to be placed in such a position um, that it is supported by four pillars and hung from the clasps that are on the tabernacle lining itself. So let's go back to that. And here we had these five curtains that were 28 by four cubits. And they were stitched together on the selvages, I guess, uh, and they were coupled together. But then the two sets of five, 20 cubits long and 20 cubits long, had hoops made on them and uh, loops, that is, of cloth. And they were then linked together with gold clasps. So there was a join in the middle between five and five at 20 cubits and 20 cubits of gold. And when that was laid on top, as it went 20 cubits back from the front in this 30 cubit long building, well, it ended up dividing the building into a section that was 20 cubits long and a section that was 10 cubits long. Yeah, because the whole thing was 20 frames long, which is 30 cubits. So two thirds of the way from the front, the veil was hung. And the subtlety of knowing that is knowing that it was hung from the clasps that are on the inner tabernacle of fine white linen that has the cherubim on it. And that divided the tabernacle into the holy place and the most holy. And that division was a critical division within the tabernacle. It separated these two parts and the reason that it was important was because 
of what would go into each of them. And into the smaller portion at the back on the westward side, the one that was 10 by 10 by 10 cubits, were placed the ark and the mercy seat. And in the larger section were placed the lampstand and the table, which Stephen dealt with last Lord's Day. It's also worth knowing that when we come to chapter 30, we'll learn of the altar of incense, which is the golden altar, and it was placed in the larger section at the western end of that, just in front of the veil. So there was one other item of furniture within there that we've not heard yet um, or not considered how it was to be made. Um, but the key thing is that in the most holy place were the ark and the mercy seat. And of course, we know from what we read from chapter 25, reminded ourselves tonight, that that was the place where God would make his presence known and where he would be and from where he would speak. And hence, it was to be the most holy place. And just outside, separated by a veil, was the holy place. Then, <clears throat> if we think further, once these furnishings were put in and the lampstands, the lamps on the lampstand were lit, all seven of the oil lamps were lit, then the, the light would flood the place. And the light was from within. And I don't want to go back over what Stephen said in detail, but of course that lamp reminds us that we read of Christ being the light of the world. In him was life, and the life was the light of the world. The almond tree that was the shape of the, the, the lampstand and so many almond features speak of life in its various forms, and that life and light represent him. And Christ is the light within the holy place. And what it illuminated for those who were permitted to go inside was glorious and pure. There were golden bars of the frames and the bars that held them together, of which we read, that ran horizontally. There was this white linen, this fine twined white linen with this uh, ornamental scarlet yarn and blue yarn and purple yarn. And there were cherubim woven skillfully into it. They weren't just haphazard, you know. It wasn't a kid's drawing. It wasn't just something that was given to whoever happened to be around to make. God chose who was to do all this work. And the people who made these things were given by God the skills to make them. And it was beautiful. And it was what God wanted. Of course, when we think of cherubim, we first come across cherubim in the Garden of Eden. And their job was to prevent Adam and Eve from returning to the garden for fear that they might eat of the tree of life. Not because God was frightened that they might eat from the tree of life and didn't want them to do it the way that Satan had uh, alluded to with the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but because it would have been the worst possible thing for Adam and Eve to have eaten of the tree of life and to have continued forever in a living state as man and woman with sin in their lives. So the cherubim were there guarding what God had asked them to guard. And as we see cherubim throughout Scripture, they, they picture they're the guardians of God's throne and of his holiness and his righteousness. So these cherubim, of course, were modelled in, uh, in this uh, position of looking over the mercy seat 
Not that those in the holy place could see that. But there were two cherubim there, and they were, if you like, uh, defenders of God's holiness and defenders of God's throne, of his sovereignty. Mighty beings, cherubim. They seem to be the most powerful and the greatest of the class of angels, of which, certainly of which we read. And these images were woven into this fine twined linen. So there was always this sense for anybody, the priests who were inside the holy place, that this was a place where God's holiness and righteousness, spoken to by the white, his purity and glory and majesty, spoken to by the gold, were being protected by the cherubim. And it was a place where respect was required and reverence was required. And an appreciation of God's almighty power and his holiness was given to them all the time. So that's what was like inside, and that's what the various things um, were like inside. But briefly, what was it like in the outside? Well, it was a big heap, you know? It was a big heap covered in goatskins. That's what you would see in the outside. And that takes our minds to Isaiah 53. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. From the outside, there was nothing appealing. Nothing about Christ that was in any way differentiated but inside was utter perfection and majesty and the tabernacle would point us in that direction. And then the second part really, um, the protocol of the tabernacle. How, how was it accessed? And We'll, we'll go into this in more detail when the time comes and the instructions are given about how the access was to be provided. But for the sake of thinking of, the, of what we've talked about and read about tonight and the significance of the components that we've read about tonight, it's worth just thinking. There was outside, you know, outside of this tent, there was the court, the place where the uh, the um, the altar and the laver were, were present where sacrifices were carried out but it was outside and then through the screen there was the holy place that we've thought about for the first 20 cubits and then there was the veil and inside the veil was the most holy place the screen that was a prohibiting uh, gateway, if you like. Not just anybody could go in past that screen. Only the priests. And indeed only those in duty at the time. Um, and it required sacrifice. And they would go in to the holy place on a, a very strictly controlled basis. But the priests which included Aaron the high priest, were able to go in there and they would see the splendour of which we've spoken about. But then we think about the veil and access to the most holy place was most definitely a restricted thing. And it wasn't just any priest who could go in there. I, I dare say that it, crossed the minds of many priests who were working in the holy place that they might wonder what it would be like inside the veil, inside the most holy place. But any godly priest who was in the holy place would have appreciated that just to lift the veil aside and go through was not the thing to do. God was in there. That was the place of God's presence. It was prohibited to them. They were not entitled to go there. 
and they would have lived in fear, perhaps, of accidentally falling in there or something. But certainly any godly priest would not have thought, I'm going to go and open the door and have a look. I'm going to see what it's like in there. Because it was clear that only on the Day of Atonement, once per year, and only for the high priest, who at that time was Aaron, could anyone enter into the most holy place. And in the holy place was God. His holiness and his righteousness were fiercely guarded. And they were constantly reminded. The priests were constantly reminded and the people outside who couldn't even get into the holy place were reminded that access to God's presence was not to be taken lightly and it was a very controlled thing. But the remarkable thing was, although we think often of that negative, it was possible once a year. So God's grace in making access to his presence available was something that the people could take joy in because God did allow into his presence once a year their representative. Following the sacrifices and the ritual of the Day of Atonement, the high priest was able to enter in and obtain the, the knowledge of the atonement of the people for another year for their sins. That was a tremendous blessing in God's grace. So although we often think of the negative aspect of not being able to go in except once a year, remember that it was much more than they'd ever had before. And God's grace was was there in the setting up of the tabernacle. But in these various ways, access required the washing and that by water and by blood. There's the sacrifice of blood and there's the washing and the labor there was the consecration of the priests um, when they were initially consecrated that involved completely washing their bodies. Of course, the Lord referred to that uh, difference between the washing of the body and the, the cleansing of the feet uh, when he cleansed the disciples' feet. But there were procedures to go through. There was a process to go through. And when they did get into the holy place, as we've thought, the, the lampstand was actually speaking to them of God. Now, we can think of how it speaks of Christ. Put ourselves in the position of the priests. They didn't have that insight, but they would understand it spoke of God. They didn't understand it spoke of his eternal son who would obtain the redemption that... Um, on which the Day of Atonement was predicated. It's interesting that we look at the benefits of looking at the New Testament, and I've got some verses written down here. John 1 and 14 is so familiar. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What was God's purpose in having the sanctuary? That he might dwell in the midst of his people. And there came a time when the Son of God came and in some translations, tabernacled among us. I think Darby translates it that way. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We thought earlier of the, the veil, and we mentioned Herod's temple, which was extant at the time that the Lord was here. And of course, we read in Mark's gospel that at the time that the Lord died, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, was torn in two. And 
Hebrews tells us that we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, through the veil. That is through his flesh, his flesh being the veil. And we can enter into what to the, the Jewish people was effectively barred other than once a year for the, the, their high priest. We can enter into God's presence because God himself in the form of his son came to dwell amongst mankind. To dwell amongst his people and his people knew him not and didn't want to know him. Of course, but those who know him spiritually, he dwells with us and he has broken down that barrier to God's presence that the veil represented because he has offered a sacrifice that is acceptable to God and has propitiated, not just given God a symbolic sacrifice that would point at something that propitiated and therefore God atoned, but God fully atoned and was propitiated at the cross and all the work of the Lord Jesus there. It's interesting that, of course, as an aside, in Herod's temple, there was no ark with the mercy seat. It had gone. It disappeared. It had been lost by then. Boya, um, this morning, talked about the emptiness. No leaves. The emptiness of what this nation had become. The veil was right and proper that they should have it because it was to symbolise going into the most holy place. But anybody who went in there would not have found God in reality, for the glory had departed. But Christ was in the cross, and he entered into the holy place, not made by man, made by God. And his sacrifice satisfied God's wrath fully. God was propitiated, wholly satisfied, unlike all these other sacrifices that we read of that took place around this tabernacle. And then we cast ourselves forward and we go into Revelation. And John writes... In Revelation 21, verse 22 onwards, and I saw no temple in the city, the city of the new Jerusalem, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. That's what we were saying earlier about the lampstand. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gate will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it. You see, the one thing that does, is persistent in all of this is God's holiness. Access to God's presence has not improved because God has somehow lowered these standards. It's because God gave his son that he might maintain his standards. But nonetheless, it's not for anyone to enter in. And anyone who rejects Christ, anyone who turns their back on him, nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's for those who believe, those who have faith. I trust that applies to all of us. And if not, don't go away thinking, oh, this message is great and it's wonderful to think what God will do for me. Because remember that warning from Revelation. So in conclusion, in ancient times, God had a place built on earth by his people where he might dwell in their midst. And we've read about it. And while that place 
has great significance, had a great significance to his people at that time, it was but a shadow of the things to come. And a shadow is a two-dimensional thing of a three-dimensional object that lacks colour. It's not a wonderful thing, a shadow. But it tells you a bit about the thing of which it's a shadow. But the one thing we can always say is the reality greatly exceeds in quality and wonder the thing of, that is its shadow. And in Christ, and in Christ alone, can we be granted access to God. And the pointers are there in what we've read and what we will read, continuing our studies, that tell us that it wasn't the sacrifices that allowed God to forgive them. It was Christ and his work on the cross that allowed God to forgive them. These people offered their sacrifices in faith, not fully understanding what they were doing. But it wasn't the bull whose blood was shed that allowed God to forgive them. It was Christ on the cross. And everything points to Christ. And so much of the Old Testament, when we look at it, of course, tells us of him. And so the tabernacle and all the things associated with it, and certainly the things within the tent itself, remind us of the holiness of God and the wonderful work of Christ in redemption that brought about an offering on the cross that was wholly acceptable to God and satisfied God's demands for justice. And for those of us who are believers, we're here, fully aware that we can come at any time into God's presence. Even for us, who have a far better thing than what these Jewish people had at that time, what we have is still not as good as it's going to be. And our knowledge of heaven is limited. But there's one thing, it will be far greater than anything that we can think. It's the place where God dwells. And it's the place where the Lamb is the light. And there's no night, there's no darkness, there's no evil. And his name is to be glorified and he is to be eternally worshipped. Shall we pray? Our Father, we give thanks for your word. We thank you that we can learn from it, even though we read about things that were written uh, in their immediate sense to people who lived uh, thousands of years ago. We thank you that they point to Christ. We thank you that we too can look to him. We thank you for him and for all that he has done for us. We do pray indeed that each one here might enjoy the knowledge and be fully blessed in knowing that he is our propitiation who fully satisfies you for our personal sins. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.